0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: Hi, Brian Lehrer here. Up next, Brian Lehrer Weekend. Three of our favorite segments from the week, packaged together for you to listen to on the weekend. So enjoy, and I'll see you back on the radio Monday at 10 a.m. on WNYC and WNYC.org. It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. Is it possible that we're learning some of the wrong lessons about American culture from the pandemic? In a New York Times op-ed, NYU sociologist Eric Kleinenberg writes that people tend to talk about an epidemic of loneliness that the pandemic spawned. Kleinenberg says it's really a loss of trust we should be talking about. That theory is part of a new book by Kleinenberg called 2020, One city, seven people, and the year everything changed. The city is New York. We'll hear about some of the seven people and talk about what changed that we should still be talking about in 2024, trust and other things. Yes, 2020, the year that brought an economic crash precipitated by COVID-19. 2020, the year George Floyd was murdered by a police officer. 2020, the year that President Biden first went head-to-head with Donald Trump. Eric Kleinenberg is also director of the Institute for Public Knowledge at NYU. And again, the book title is 2020, One City, Seven People, and the Year Everything Changed. Eric, thanks for coming on. Welcome back to WNYC.
2: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
1: And I want to start, even though this is so personal, obviously, to so many people who are in grief and everything else since 2020. Still, I want to start on kind of an abstraction, I guess, with your theory of crisis and what we can learn from it. You write extreme events can make visible a range of conditions that are always present but difficult to perceive. So talk about that theory of crisis.
2: Well, it's, it's the theory that has motivated my work for several decades now. It's the idea that crises reveal things, who we are, what we value, whose lives matter, and of course, whose don't. And so when 2020 started, knowing this, my first you know, very human impulse was to socially distance, to close the door, to take care of myself and my family, but I also knew we were living through something that would be historic. I didn't know how big and how long it would last, but I I knew it was consequential, and so I just started to look at uh, as much as I could, and, you know, in, in fact, I think if we, I think we have to look closely at what we experienced in 2020 because we're still living in this kind of, you know, long COVID is a social disease. Mm. And if we repress it, that doesn't mean it's not acting out on us.
1: And you refer to a French sociologist's theory of anomie, the phenomenon in which spikes in destructive behavior occur during times of crisis. Why is anomie a fitting descriptive for the state of our country in 2024?
2: Well, here we are feeling, you know, atomized, feeling uh, on our own. Feeling distrustful, we have become even more skeptical of core institutions, including government, than we were in 2020, and that is saying something because that was not the happiest time even before the pandemic started. Uh, you know, one thing that we see when a society is experiencing enemy is a spike in interpersonal violence, and you know, it's fascinating, Brian. Countries around the world experienced severe lockdowns and all kinds of traumas in 2020. And actually, by comparative standards, the US hardly did lockdowns at all. It's nothing like what happened in China or Italy or Australia or France. But we got exercised and angry and we took it out on each other. I mean, in the book I write about uh, those viral videos of ordinary people fighting it out in grocery stores because someone was wearing a mask or someone wasn't wearing a mask. There were cases of homicide uh, over that same issue. The US is an outlier in the world because in 2020, when most societies got more peaceful, we had this incredible spike in violence and not just guns, Brian. We had a spike in reckless driving, in vehicular manslaughter. It's like we stopped taking each other and each other's well-being into account at the very moment when what we needed to survive was solidarity.
1: So, for example, along these lines, one of the seven New Yorkers you profile is Daniel Presty, owner of a bar on staten island uh, and The story, as you tell tell it, shows us how a once apolitical bar owner on Staten Island, became radicalized by government mandates and a lack of support from the government. So tell us some of the Daniel Presty story and how it fits into that theory of animal meat.
2: Yeah, so Presty was a bar manager in a new establishment called Max Public House that had just opened in Staten Island at the end of 2019. And, you know, it took the New York Liquor Authority, the State Liquor Authority, almost nine months to get him his liquor license. And he couldn't figure out why. I mean, the authority exists, you know, to make sure that these businesses can operate safely. What what, what took so long? By the time they finally opened, uh, it was the slow season. And then COVID happened, and they got shut down. And his original idea with his partner was to have a neighborhood establishment where people could come and just get to know each other better. It's, you know... Uh, kind of hitting a social need that we all have, right? to be together face to face, to gather and convene. And what happened over the course of the year is he felt like he kept getting shut down and had his business operations restricted. He tried to get meetings for th- you know different agencies to find out what would happen next, when he could open. And he couldn't get anywhere. and he, he everything was falling apart in his business, had all kinds of personal effects. He got anxious about it. And at some point, Presti and his partner decided, you know, we're, we're, we're going to fall apart anyway. We might as well take a stand. And they turned their bar into what they called an autonomous zone. Uh, and, and that wound up getting the attention of, you know, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, uh, the the right-wing media, then protesters on the right, including the Proud Boys, you know, came to Staten Island. I, I learned about Presti from from watching videos of the scene at Staten Island, you know here it was in new york city and 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 you know what i what I came to learn is that Presti actually is quite like millions of people across the country who found in 2020 that th- th- this feeling that they were not that they were lonely, but that they were on their own, that there was no one really to give them the hand that they needed, uh, despite the stimulus checks to, uh, despite the the support that we did provide, millions of people felt like. They they didn't have what they needed to get by. They were terrified of their future. And the reality of America in 2020 is that many uh, political leaders on the right spoke to people like Presty, and uh, you know I I tell his story in the book, uh, not to advocate for him uh, or his position, but to humanize that part of the experience, which was really important for America.
1: Let's notice if we have a kind of social or cultural long COVID in this country here in early 2024, as our guest Eric Kleinenberg says we do. What do you think the symptoms are? Give us a call, 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. An epidemic of loneliness, an epidemic of loss of trust. What else? Or ask Eric Kleinenberg a question, 212-433-WNYC, 212 212-433- 433 Nine six nine two. You can even call if you're one of the seven people he profiles in his new book. 2020, One city, seven people, and the year everything changed. Two one two four three three, nine six nine two. Now Daniel Presti was the lead character in the New York Times op-ed. That was a little adaptation from the book, mm-hmm. and that's where you laid out the theory that people like the Surgeon General of the United States, Vivek Murthy, talk about an epidemic of loneliness being um, the main cultural um, impact of the pandemic. And you say, no, it's not loneliness. It's loss of trust. Make that contrast for our listeners.
2: Well, the the Surgeon General, I I think, has good reason to be raising concerns about loneliness. It's clearly a, a serious condition that millions of Americans suffer from. That said, I don't think there's really good evidence that we're in an epidemic of loneliness. There's clearly not evidence that Americans are lonelier than ever. There was a little spike for some for some parts of the population in loneliness during the lockdowns. But since 2020, levels of loneliness have plummeted across the population. That, you know, the, 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 tr- the problem is we're still stuck in this feeling like something is off. And I think the reason is not because we're lonely, it's because we're, we're what I call structurally isolated. We, we feel like we're, we're on our own. And uh, a, a number of people who I profile in my book with very different experiences, very different politics, th- there's a, a profile of someone in every borough in New York in this book. What you get is the sense that when they, when they needed support, when they needed to turn to our core institutions uh, for a, a hand, they found that they wound up getting slapped and I think a lot of Americans are living with this. Can, can I just tell you, say one area in which I think this really becomes really clear is yeah. re- remember remember essential workers? Remember, remember that concept? There was there was a moment when it wasn't just the pandemic, but the economy was in free fall. People were losing their jobs by the millions. The market was crashing. And the government said to us, some workers are essential and their contributions matter and they have to keep going to work. And by the way, that those essential workers were not the finance guys, they were not the, the attorneys, they were the health workers, but then there were all the, the blue collar workers, you know, the, the clerks and the bus drivers and subway uh, custodians and people working in agriculture business, the meatpacking plants. And you would think that calling someone essential would be an honorific and it would come with appreciation. It would come with support, you know, PPE or guaranteed health care or maybe some kind of a, a, a subsidy, a bonus. But in America, to be called essential meant to be deemed expendable. And essentially, we, we, we threw people, disproportionately black, disproportionately Latino, out into a dangerous workforce. and. At a moment, it looked like maybe we were going to do something wonderful to support them, like a, 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 a kind of built-up version of the banging on pots and pans at the end of the day for the healthcare workers. Like maybe collectively, we would we would do something, but instead, it's like we walked to the edge of this moral precipice, and then we just turned around and walked back and pretended like it didn't happen. And I think what's um, so many Americans are struggling with right now, it's not actually the problem of loneliness. It's the problem of doubting whether we are collectively capable and willing to take care of each other anymore.
1: So does this connect to perhaps the story of the New Yorker from the Bronx, who you profile in the book, Sophia Zayas, 35-year-old public servant who also served as Governor Cuomo's Bronx regional representative? You write about Sophia's mistrust of the vaccine Despite her working vaccine campaigns in the Bronx, what do we learn from her?
2: I mean, Sophia is an amazing person. She worked tirelessly through the the toughest parts of the pandemic. She is from the Bronx. She lives in the neighborhood where she grew up. Her family's there, and she her job was to support the governor's efforts to provide you know vital resources for that region during the pandemic. That meant you know trying to get a PPE and uh, you know respirators for hospitals, hel- you know helping hospitals deal with dead bodies when there were too many uh, for them to handle. It, it meant supporting small businesses. It also meant as the pandemic went on, helping to get people enrolled uh, to take the vaccine. And you know S- Sophia is you know, from a community where there is real skepticism about vaccines because of the history of medical experimentation without consent. Uh, on black and brown people in the, in the US. And so Sophia found herself you know in charge of you know organizing these mass vaccination campaigns, which by the way, the state targeted in the Bronx out of concerns about health inequality, right? The notion was the Bronx got hit really hard in the early waves of the pandemic, and they wanted to make sure they got a high uptake on the vaccine. But she herself, you know, really wondered whether it was safe enough, whether we had enough evidence that it worked. And her story is, is the story of someone who's kind of trying to fight through that ambivalence and get on board. And I think that's also, again, th- to be clear, m- my point in, in telling these stories is so we get a deeper understanding of this predicament that we're in right now, because, you know, we, 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 there are all these ways in which it's, it's hard to make sense of, the American electorate or New Yorkers today, like on, on so many measures, things are better, the economy's kicking again, they're, You know, they're jobs that we just learned from your interview, the, the city budget's not as bad as they say it is. There's all mm-hmm. these ways in which we're, we're back and yet we, we don't quite feel it in our bones. We act as if the crisis is worse than ever. And, and that's what I'm trying to help us figure out.
1: And so if you're writing about a crisis of loss of trust, Ross in Brooklyn has a theory on a piece of that. Ross, you're on WNYC with Eric Kleinenberg. Hi.
3: Hi. uh, Thanks for taking my call, and uh, thank you to Eric for writing this piece. It's an important uh, subject to keep talking about, even though I think a lot of people's first impulse is to deny uh, this trauma that a lot of us have been through in the last few years, whether that was just the fear or healthcare workers, what they went through, But I really think a lot of it comes down to the individualization of a collective problem, that this is an impossibly complex problem to navigate. But at a certain point, and especially in 2021, 2022, a lot of us were told to figure out what your individual risk factors are, and then navigate based on that, which is really by design kind of impossible to do. It's exhausting. And a lot of people sort of tune out from the the base problem of protecting yourself in a public health crisis, which is still going on. You know, Thousands of people are still dying every week from COVID. Um, the COVID Express sites in New York, for example, run by the city government, they were brilliant. They worked very well, but they've been shut down uh, because we're all on our own to figure out how to navigate this disease, which leads us to a place of kind of giving up. Uh, so thank you again. Uh, I really, really appreciate just coming back to this subject, even though, uh, you know, the pandemic isn't over, but a lot of people would like to pretend that it is, especially because it's convenient for business.
1: Ross, thank you very much. Well, Eric, how much do you agree with that?
2: Very much. uh, And and I want to point out a few things. Uh, You know, first of all, we, we were traumatized, I think, especially all of us in New York City, because during the most difficult time early in the pandemic, you know, we were the global epicenter uh... the struggle here was immense and it was frightening uh... for many people and uh... I, and i think the thing about american individualism is that while there's no doubt that uh... we are on the extreme uh, when we compare ourselves to other countries in this way we didn't necessarily have to respond to a crisis in the way that we did because along with american individualism comes a long tradition of american communitarianism uh, the, the stuff that Tocqueville wrote about, you know, uh, two centuries ago. Uh, we, are, we are also joiners. Uh, we work at the neighborhood level to take care of each other. And in fact, you know, one of the people I wrote about in the book, Nuala uh, she. she's a story of the, the rise of mutual aid networks, which proliferated in this city and in many others during the pandemic. And at the grassroots, Americans did amazing things to take care of each other. But I want to point out just how badly we were led as a nation during 2020, and I think it's important since we're in a political year to point that out. There are very individualistic countries out there, like I, I write about Australia in the book, places that, you know, they have historic levels of individualism that had a right-wing government at the beginning of 2020, that had a prime minister led by a science denier, who's kind of skeptical about all kinds of science, and yet they took the pandemic seriously enough to work across political ideology, to form these uh, government agencies that had people on different sides, led by health experts, and they coalesced to build solidarity and trust. Australia is an amazing case because they, they had some skirmishes and protests about lockdowns, yes, but they also had less excess death than they did in a typical year in 2020. Fewer, you know, fewer people died than do in a typical year in Australia. And levels of trust spiked in Australia during huh. 2020. It w- we were not fated to go this way. And I think it's important for us to remember the chaos and disorder and dysfunction of the federal government, especially the wild messaging that came all over the place. And you know, right now you, you can hear on the campaign trail, Trump say things like, are you better off now than you were five years ago? You know, which is not actually the way that that statement is supposed to go. It's supposed to be four years ago because there's no one more than Donald Trump who has such a vested interest in having us forget about what we lived through in 2020 yeah. Think of it as an aberration. It's really important that we go back and remember and tell the stories of what happened in this country. It's it, not just the pandemic, by the way. All of these crises, the economic crisis, the, the fights around racial justice and police brutality, right, the assault on democracy. This was a major year in, the, in our personal lives and in the life of our city, and we shouldn't go on without stopping to have conversations about what we went through how it changed us and why it matters.
1: It's interesting that Nuala O'Doherty comes up in your book and that you profile her. I don't know if you know, but for our listeners for whom that name might sound familiar and like, where did I just hear that name before? We just gave Nuala O'Doherty uh, the Lera Prize for Community Wellbeing—we call it something—we bestow on this show every year uh, to a few people doing good work that enhances community well-being, and we gave it to her for her work at the Jackson Heights Immigrant Center with asylum seekers. Uh, knowing nothing about your book, mm-hmm. so what a what a coincidence! Well, can I, um, can I,
2: can also, let me just say this is a kind of a, a, an amazing thing that happened in 2020. It's we can tell the horror stories. But we built in 2020, in every neighborhood of the city, this invisible civic infrastructure through mutual aid networks that came up as grassroots efforts to help people get food or to get medication or to navigate a complex health problem. And the, the Jackson Heights Immigration Center that you just gave this award to th- four years ago was the COVID care neighborhood network, That's literally right. the, the basement of NULA's apartment. Yep. Uh, Began its transformation from a, a private basement into a community resource during COVID. And the same set of people who helped their neighbors get through the worst part of this crisis, they're now helping their new neighbors, the new migrants to New York City, file their paperwork for asylum so that they can start the path exactly. towards becoming American. And, it, and it's important for us to remember that part of the story because some amazing and inspiring things happened in this city and in this country in 2020. And that's part of our legacy too.
1: Yeah, and we just told that story on the air of how the COVID care center started in her basement and then she transitioned it to the immigrant center when the pandemic started fading and the asylum seekers started arriving. Let, let me just raise a question about one premise here, that the government left us on our own. I mean, there's this whole other narrative that says the government stepped up during the pandemic in a way that they're now stepping away from, but that a lot of progressives especially um, wish would have become permanent. Mm -hmm. So there was the expanded child tax credit that cut child poverty in this country by 50%, according to some studies. Um, That's now expired. Um, There were the pandemic stimulus checks uh, that allowed people to stay home from work and not fall into poverty um, when uh, when they couldn't uh, go to their jobs and get their usual paychecks, there was an eviction moratorium. Uh, they gave out you know the government mailed free COVID tests to anybody who wanted them, and so a lot of the pushback on the right was the government is doing too much to support people and libertarian economics should flourish again.
2: Yeah, that, so that's an important part of the story. It's, it's also part of the story of 2020. N- not everyone was on their own. Of course, the government delivered a tremendous amount of support through the stimulus checks. We know that they didn't go out evenly or equitably uh, Presty's story is important because it's about the struggle of a small business to compete with, with the cheesecake factories of the world. You all remember uh, that major corporations were able to use their highly professional expert policy lobbying staff to uh, seize more government money than the small businesses were, were able to. So millions of people slipped through the cracks in the stimulus uh, uh, debate. Uh, The Child Poverty Reduction Act is one of the extraordinary accomplishments uh, of that uh, 2020-2021 moment. We did reduce child poverty by record numbers, uh, but I think part of the reason that so many Americans feel discarded and distrustful today is because we turned our back on all those people we supported. We, we, we mm-hmm. refuse to, and it's not, we shouldn't say we, it's the right, uh, turn down the chance to extend the Child Poverty Reduction Act, turn yeah. down the chance to rebuild our infrastructure on a massive scale uh, by preparing us for the next set of threats. And so it, it feels, again, as if we started this thing, we made gestures towards creating some new and better world, a new and better, more secure nation, uh, and, and then we stomped it out and went back to things as they were before. And so so I think all of that is in the air. And, you know, here we are, Brian, again, it's, it's 2024. We're, we're facing the same political choice that we had in 2020. We're fighting out over these same things. But my fear is that because we have refused to talk seriously about what happened to us in 2020, about what was made available in terms of social protection and what wasn't. Uh, it, we, we've opened the gates for all of these revisionist histories in which you know, people make wild claims of, about what this country went through.
1: Tiffany in Bayonne. You're on WNYC with NYU sociology professor Eric Kleinenberg, author, author now of 2020, One City, Seven People, and the Year Everything Changed. Hi, Tiffany.
4: Hi there, thanks so much for taking my call, and thank you, Eric, for this uh, important work that you've done. Um, going back to your point about some of the hostilities and horrific things that have happened uh, over COVID, uh, I was a solo female traveler. I drove from uh, New Jersey to Michigan for a wedding, and on my way back through Pennsylvania, I was in a, a Prius for, with California plates, and I stopped at a rest stop that was also a truck stop. Uh, I masked up. I was the only one with a mask, and as I was walking up to the building, a man with um, uh, right-wing uh, clothing on uh, had a holster on. He unbuckled his holster and sprayed me with um, a Novocaine spray,
5: um,
4: yeah. and um, I ended up uh, becoming very numb all up into my one side of my body mm. and ended up uh, pulling over and calling 911 and being rushed to Uh, a hospital and they theorized that he targeted me because i was the only one in a mask and i was a lone female and i was driving a california prius and he just possibly made assumptions around that and also potentially was going to follow me and and either rob me or worse but um the um hospital staff in rural pennsylvania um suddenly just released me in the middle of nowhere and I had no family my car was fifteen miles away and and they just said goodbye mm. um, and and uh, thank God someone from the wedding a new uh, state trooper in Pennsylvania who spent forty five minutes to come and get me and bring me to my car and make sure I was okay but these are the kinds of things that you know and the police took they didn't get to the scene of the rest stop for two hours it was terrifying um, and I you know maybe not but it looked like it was politically motivated and that i was masking and this hmm. you person, told uh you know, told our
1: uh, screener the guy was wearing a trump shirt is that right
4: yeah yes that's right he had a trump shirt on and cowboy boots and i mean i, I don't want to stereotype but he definitely was um, um pro-trump <laughs> well
2: you know that, that's such a that's such a powerful story and you know talk about being alone in america and 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 left on our own By core institutions, I mean it. it Really hits there. I I guess you know, for me, you you know, you're you're raising a point that drives one of the chapters in the book. I try to understand how it is that this, you know, little piece of fabric that we put on our face, uh, took on the weight of all of our political frustration and kind of ideological, uh, you know, baggage. And it's such an amazing story because very few countries had the kinds of feuds like the one you describe over masks. And some people will remember that when the CDC came out in early April of 2020 with the new guidelines that Americans should wear masks in public because we understood that when they were worn properly, they really could protect us. Trump announced that policy in a press conference. And during that announcement, he said, "You know, the CDC wants you to wear masks. Personally, I'm not going to do it. And then it became uh, this mandate within his administration that you know everyone had to not wear a mask, you bare your face because a mask is a sign of, of weakness and fear. Mike Pence winds up going to the Mayo Clinic of all places and refusing to put a mask on while he's with doctors and patients, he's the only one there. And so then the, 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 the mask becomes a symbol for the right, but the mask, I think it's important for us to acknowledge also became a symbol for progressives and Democrats, the next thing you know, you know Brian changes his you know social media photo to Brian Lair in a mask. His name is Brian. Hashtag wears a mask, lair uh, We you know, didn't the, actually do that. So <laughs> I I, you're describing an archetype. <laughs> hypothetically, hypothetically, yes. but the political candidates, you know, <laughs> Joe Biden and Kamala Harris start doing, you know, advertisements with masks on, and and, and that's all to say that the mask became like a symbol for progressives also. And suddenly, when you, dude, I, I, I'm guessing some people listening remember that feeling, like you're walking down the street and you're wearing a mask and you see someone without a mask or even worse in a grocery store, and you could feel like your blood boiling, you know, all this anger about yeah. what that person's doing. Well, and so we've transformed these things that were neutral. There were health protections, medication, vaccines, masks. We've turned them into symbols of our politics and ideology, and it's very hard for us to deal with the current situation because of that.
1: Tiffany, I'm so sorry that awful thing happened to you in 2022, I think it's important that you shared that story because people maybe learned from it, so thank you for calling in. Um, And Eric, we're over time, but I wanna put kind of a punctuation mark at the end of Tiffany's story and your answer, which is that Uh, most of the callers on the board, if we were to keep going, would be saying some version of this loss of trust was Trump's fault. It didn't happen in other countries. And if we had had a normal president in 2020, um, you wouldn't have had to write a book today about the loss of trust in the United States over the last four years. In 30 seconds, how much do you think that's true?
2: Well, we know that Trump was responsible for an enormous share of the misinformation that circulated at the time. And we know that many other nations that are like ours took 2020 as an opportunity to bond together and build solidarity and try to overcome partisan differences. They had different levels of success for the long term, but in the short term, they were able to mount a collective campaign to. Uh, to to get through it and the very opposite of that happened here what we know is during crises when we're dealing with new threats people look to leaders to help them get through it and I think here in the United States we look to a leader uh, who uh, spit out a lot of uh, bile and we're still paying a price for that.
1: Eric Kleinenberg's new book is 2021: City, Seven People, and the Year Everything Changed. If you want to see him talk about the book in person, you can do that on Monday, March first, uh, March fourth, Monday, March fourth, at six thirty at the Stavros Niarchos Foundation Library on Fifth Avenue at fortieth Street in Manhattan. He'll be in dialogue with Columbia University history professor Kim Phillips Fine. Again, Monday, March 4th at 6.30 at the Neyarcos Foundation Library, 5th Avenue and 40th Street in Manhattan. Eric, thanks so much for sharing it with us.
2: Thanks for having me here.
6: On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. Each week, we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected and you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts. It's The Brian
1: Lehrer Show on... On WNYC, good morning again, everyone, and it's Black History Month, a time when we look back at the hardships black people in the United States have endured since they were first abducted to this continent and highlight the glory of the community's achievements despite centuries of oppression. And while recognizing this community's glory, its greatness born of grit, one might say, we must also acknowledge the blind spots stemming from what might be called a desire to rise above. And so we ask, what do you get when you combine a community seeking respect after a long history of indignity with a virus that thrives on shame affecting the most vulnerable in our population? Well, for one thing, you get poems like this one heard on last week's episode of Blind Spot, The Plague in the Shadows, hosted by Kai Wright.
7: This poem talks about a family going to a funeral of a son who died of AIDS and how they respond to it. The mother was radiant, and too composed. She wore a black-on-black silk dress, which tied at the neck with a large bow and ended below the knee in a wide knife pleats. Her salt and pepper hair pulled onto a...
6: The poem goes on to describe the whole family's insistent, cold dignity in this kind of detail until arriving at the deceased's lover.
7: Jeff unconsciously reached out to touch the pewter casket, but was intercepted by the mother. She whisked her hand away from the freezing politeness and said, he's gone now. So there's
1: one excerpt from Blind Spot on last week's episode Kai, who is normally the host and managing editor of Notes from America, heard here on Sunday nights at 6, uh, and now of Blind Spot, which WNYC produced with the History Channel. Kai investigated how what's known as respectability politics amid- amongst the black community clashed with the AIDS epidemic in 1980s Harlem, in particular. And Kai is back with us now to share some of what he's found. Hi, Kai. Always great to have you on this show. How are you doing?
6: I am well. Thanks for having me, Brian. Uh,
1: Do you want to riff on that poem a little bit and that excerpt?
6: Yeah. So there's a few things happening there that are worth naming. Um, So, um... The poem is written by a person named Craig G. Harris, and it's published in 1986 in a collection called In the Life, which is a collection of black gay writing at that time. Uh, And the person reading it is George Bellinger, Jr., who is a friend of mine, somebody I've known for a long time, uh, in covering and working on the epidemic and the black community. Um, And uh, so Craig was George's best friend. Uh, Craig died in uh, 1991. Um, and at the time that book is published and that poem is published, there, it, it's a moment in which black gay men, um, black queer people in general. Um, so it's not just gay men, but it is primarily gay men with lesbians, transgender folks um, and people who don't identify as any of those things, but that are part of the queer community, the black queer community are looking up and saying, oh, my goodness, this epidemic um, is uniquely relevant to us, um, and no one cares. And um, and what had been an arts movement, um, there had been this uh, oft- often unknown, uh, undiscussed uh, Black queer arts movement in the '80s um, in DC and in New York um, that George and Craig and all those folks were were part of was starting to morph into an AIDS movement, um, uh, and so you hear. Their art start to take it up, and Craig, um, in that poem, starts taking up one of the core questions, which is the ways in which our own community um, was responding to the epidemic and responding to us in, in our place in that community. Um, and you know, the scene the, the the scene of the of of the AIDS funeral, which um, people who have followed this epidemic will will be familiar with, um, where. Lovers and family members and our uh, lovers and friends and lives are erased by family um, because their lives were shameful to them. Uh, that's that's what's that's that's the scene that Craig is describing in that poem.
1: And and so here's a clip of Craig Harris, who was not the reader of that poem in the first clip, but the person who wrote that poem um, from a moment when he grabbed the mic at a 1986 conference of the American Public Health Association.
8: Because they have been led to believe by the public health system and all forms of media to believe that people of color are not suffering from AIDS in significant numbers.
6: In reality, almost 40% of people diagnosed with AIDS in the country at that very moment were either black or Latino. And he told them, maybe you'd notice this disparity if you let us speak more often. Please remember that
8: as you are victims of a society which is institutionally racist, heterosexist, and classist, you may benefit from the experience and input of your Black, Latino, and Asian peers who are on the front line fighting inadequate health care for our communities. Thank you very much.
1: So, Kai, was the context of that 1986 clip that this American Public Health Association panel that he was speaking to had no diversity?
6: It's, it, that is the context, but it's really broader than that. It's, it's again, and remember, that's the same year that he published that poem. Um, it is the, the context is that year of this group of people waking up to, we have to save ourselves. So they were at that conference, Craig and a number of other of these um, black queer activists that I'm talking about, to create an organization called the National Minority AIDS Council, which still exists today, that became the vehicle for challenging two things. One, challenging the black community's failure to respond and to pay attention to the epidemic that was unfolding, and then challenging The public health communities um, uh, and I'll have to say the broader white gay communities belief that this was an epidemic that was solely about white gay men that that up until really that time, it was still very much in the public conversation and in the public health conversation focused on infections amongst a very particular group of people. Um, which were white gay men from a handful of big cities. Uh, and by that point, that was just no longer true of the epidemic, even of the documented cases. And so the context was them standing up, people like Craig, who literally just stormed the stage at that time, with a, group, a bunch of other people, took the mic and said, hey, you know, uh, we're not going to get anywhere if you don't start paying attention to us and, in fact, letting us lead.
1: And in your reporting you spoke with former governor of New York, David Patterson, who, um, before being governor, was was a representative of the state legislature from Harlem, and here's something he had to say in your show about our misunderstandings of the black community in this context.
7: The black community, I think, is misunderstood in other parts of the city, and even other parts of the country. The black community is largely conservative. Church going, family building,
6: and intensely ambitious. I think there were people who,
7: you know, they worked hard. They were starting to get to places. And they, at times, probably felt that there was irresponsibility in the community that was holding them back.
1: Former Governor David Patterson. So Kai, does this get into the theme uh, of the episode around what's known as respectability yeah. politics, and I think not all of our listeners know that term, right. though many will. So maybe put that in some some context, and then in the context of your series.
6: Yeah. So to start with, you know, we wanted to tell the story of that. We wanted we wanted to try to help understand why the black community, which this is just a fact, um, black traditional leadership took so long to confront this epidemic. Um, uh, it's you know, and we're talking about mainstream civil rights organizations, we're talking about the church leadership, we're talking about um, political clubs and elected officials. Why did it take so long for us to, to confront an epidemic that was in the data as early as the mid 80s so clearly overwhelmingly black? Um, and, um, and so we set that story in Harlem, uh, specifically though you could have told this story in a lot of places, but Harlem was one of the epicenters nationally early on. And I talked to David Patterson cause you know, I mean, amongst the people alive today, he's knows Harlem politics better than most, mm-hmm. um, you know, and he's trying to explain their, this an under an idea in the community that people outside of the black community may not fully understand and respect and, and, and embrace. And this is, you know, going back to the early 20th century, uh, a primary strain of black politics was arguing. what w- was what we now call black excellence. We celebrate black excellence now, right? Um, well that idea started in the early 20th century when, The core ideas about racism were that black people were inherently inferior. And so a really important political idea and organizing idea throughout the community's history has been proving that no, we are not inferior. Um, and, um, and doing so over and over and over again. And there's a lot, there's been, you know, decades of debate about whether that's a fool's errand, but nonetheless, it is an important part of, uh, of our politics. And that, and, and, and that has an edge to it because part of that is if People who, who, who feel strongly about that idea feel like, you know, if you are not <laughs> doing your part in the community to prove uh, our excellence, uh, then you are bringing disrespect and disrepute on the community. And this was a really powerful idea in the 80s in particular at that it was a turning point. Uh, You know, you have to remember it was the height of the crack epidemic. It was the onset of the Reagan administration. Uh, A lot of people, a lot of those people who we talk about who were in leadership positions had spent 20 years fighting for things that were being reversed already. Um, And um, And and they just didn't have space for people in the community who they felt like were not helping, and that was you know, and this is an epidemic that at the time was still understood to be about drug users and promiscuous gay men, and neither were those of those two groups of people fell under uh, respectable types of black people. Anybody
1: listening right now who maybe lived in Harlem in the nineteen eighties or maybe was. Uh, connected yourself um, to anybody in Black New York who had AIDS at the time, or maybe you yourself did, uh, or who wants to ask Kai Wright a question about anything pertaining to his Blind Spot series. Two one two four three three WNYC two one two four three three nine six nine two. Looking back to the 1980s, the series is Blind Spot. The Plague in the Shadows, 212-433-9692, call or text. Meanwhile, we're going to set up another clip because part of this lack of response, as you've already kind of indicated, came from the religious leaders, or some of them, in the community at the time. And here's a clip uh, of when you spoke with Pernessa Seal, who you credit with leading a crusade to convince black clergy to get involved in the fight against AIDS.
8: You know, God hates homosexuals, or God hates you because you, you know, doing drugs, or this is a raft of God, or some whatever negative, destructive messaging that they got. Most times, they got it from the pulpit, the most influential place in our community.
6: Want to talk about her or the context yeah. of that clip? Yeah. Well, so, you know, as uh, she, as Pernessa says in that clip, as Governor Patterson says in the episode is, you know, anybody certainly uh, who has been active in the black community for a very long time knows the church is just hugely important. And it's been a hugely important part of my life. I need to name, you know, um, it's just a hugely, particularly on caretaking. Right. I mean, there's so many times in my life growing up where my church, my mother's church, people from there. Intervened to make my life better, to make me safe, to take care of me when my parents were weren't around. It's just a core function of that part of our community, and it did not do that in the AIDS epidemic at the beginning. Um, and to quite to the contrary, uh, it uh, as such a powerful institution. So many pastors, at best, were ignoring it, and at worst saying, you know, this is the wrath of God. We have to, you know, we, we can't, you have to ignore these people. You, you, we, this is God's punishment for this kind of, this kind of terrible behavior. And, um, and so Pernessa Seal, uh, who you heard there, was someone who moved to New York um, at the height of the epidemic from uh, South Carolina, Lincolnville, South Carolina, to work at Harlem Hospital, Uh, as a social worker and to do epidemiological work on, on AIDS. Um, And she was, uh, she is a person of deep faith um, and deeply involved in the church. And she looked up and was like, where, you know, she's on the ward of this hospital. uh, And she's like, where is the church? Where are the, you know, how come nobody's here praying with these people who are dying? That's what we do at the church. What's going on? Um, And, uh, and she got angry And, um, and so she organized, she began organizing in the church to change that. She organized the first was called the Harlem week of prayer for the healing of AIDS, uh, in, I want to say it was 1987. Now I'm going to get it wrong off the top of my head. Um, and she, that year convinced 50 faith institutions, uh, in Harlem to come march around Harlem hospital and pray with her. Um, and she was able to do that because she understood the church. She understood, she was, she, she was peer organizing And she founded an organization called Balm and Gilead that still exists. Um, It has thousands of faith institutions uh, all around the world now, uh, mobilized in talking about educating, developing ministries around HIV and health in general in black communities. Uh, It is one of the incredible successes uh, of this epidemic. Uh, And she changed hearts, she changed minds, and she saved lives. And she's a really remarkable human being.
1: Let's take a couple of phone calls. Uh, People are calling in who do remember the 1980s in this context. And one of them in Harlem at the time is Lois in Denver today. Lois, you're on WNYC with Kai Wright. Thank you for calling in.
9: Good morning, both of you. Um, Yeah, I was. uh, So back in the 80s, um, I was in the whole act up movement. But it became clear to me, and I was also working for the AIDS, New York City AIDS um, hotline. Um, and there was a job up in East Harlem doing HIV prevention and counseling. Um, uh, so I started taking what I was learning downtown, uptown, and it was overwhelming. I was so young. I just graduated from college. And in short, I then beca- wrote a proposal to the city and uh, became the director of the uh, a got money to start the first program um, housing for homeless in the South Bronx. Mm. So I went from working in Harlem up to the South Bronx. I'm white. I'm married to a woman. Um, I'm I'm now a physician, but back then I was just kind of a college graduate doing all these things, just trying to figure things out and how to translate what I was learning downtown, Mm. uptown. It was just unbelievable devastation in the communities, but the, one of, my, one of the greatest um, memories I have from that time was I hired all of my recovering addicts to work in the program up in, in the South Bronx. And they were just amazing at working with the residents that we had in our program. And then my, my right-hand person was a, a black woman who was very religious, came from her church, and was so proactive in helping uh, the gay community and and people with AIDS wherever whatever their struggle was. She and I were just completely connected at the hip in terms of how to how to run things. She was a nurse and she was it was just a kind of amazing experience with beautiful people coming together to help a completely forgotten Mm. community.
1: Kai anything, and I never
9: wanted?
1: call your show I'm very shy <laughs> <laughs> well you did you you made a great debut, yeah, and so did uh, your dog by the way. Yeah. Um, but Kai, you want to <laughs> ask Lois anything about her oral history?
6: Well, I'd say a couple of, I mean, first off, thank you so much, Lois, for sharing that, and it just makes me think of so many people we have talked to and that I have known in my life who have very similar stories of you know, you talk about, uh, you were, you, you were just trying to figure it out at the time. There's so many people who were just trying to figure it out, you know, whose lives who had not set up their lives to be first responders to this epidemic. Um, but, um, Said, well, I, I have. This is what I'm facing, and I have to figure out how to do it. Um, and just stepped up, um, and um, and it's just, it's just been so wonderful to hear all of their stories. And for many of them, Lois, uh, it's so. Yeah. I've noticed. I I think it's because of that that it feels so. When we go and ask them about it now, it feels so present tense for them. It feels like we're asking about things that happened just yesterday. I wonder if that's true for you as well. Mm-hmm. That. Something about, it sounds yeah. like you were young at the time, uh, maybe uh, that's part of it. I was so too. young
9: and overwhelmed. I wasn't ready to deal with people dying. One, mm-hmm. one young man died in our facility because uh, the hospital turned away. This, I, I still remember, I guess I can say his first name, um, or I can just say his name started with a C, and he died in our facility because the, the hospitals kept turning him away. He was just 23. He was gay. He mm-hmm. was re- uh, rejected by his family. And, um, you know, and we weren't prepared to do, to be a hospice at all. And I was not, you know, right. I was an international relations major. I'm now a physician. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's interesting. I think that all of the feelings from that time were, were kind of, you know, buried. Um, but uh, working through the COVID acad- a- a- epidemic, I was working in Brooklyn, um, during COVID in New York and, um, and, and then all of that came to fore. It all yeah. came back. Um, I was like, oh, my God, this is my second epidemic I'm working through. So yeah, okay. Wasn't expecting that. So.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for you contributing are. some oral history to this segment. That was wonderful. Louie in Bed-Stuy remembers then, too, and personally affected. You're on WNYC. Hi, Louie.
7: Yeah. Hi, Brian. Okay. Todd. Uh, yeah, my name is Louie. Um, I was a person diagnosed with AKP AIDS um, in December of 1986. And um, it's true. You know, um, uh, there was really no response in my community in Harlem. At the time, I was living in Harlem. And um, I remember to get information or to get any type of support, um, I had to cross boundaries. You know, I had to go downtown. And um, I became a member of ACTA, New York um, each coalition on each power. Um, it was in that group, that activist group that was predominantly gay white men that, um, people were dying. I didn't care. You know what I mean? Um, I'm a, uh, a black man, you know, but I wanted the information because after a dear friend of mine died, you know, um, I didn't know where to go with the anger, you know, and with the fear, mm. you know? And so, I just went to um, where I could get information, where I could get help, you know. But it was because of that, you know, I was moved with a number of friends of mine to take over a building in Harlem, which still stands today. um, As a grassroots response, you know, to the crisis, um, we took over a building, and I was a heroin user at the time, you know, um, IDU. And anyone coming out of prison or off the streets, you know, um, could find a place, you know, that had an open door. You know, we didn't ask the question, when was the last time you used? When was the last time you ate? And we just took you in, and we just formed, you know, our own um, intentional, functional, and conscious community. Mm You know, we could run today.
1: Louis, let me ask you a question. When you um, first got involved with ACT UP, and I'm glad you said the whole name of it because people probably in large numbers know the name ACT UP as the activist group or a activist, an activist group uh, around the AIDS crisis back then, but have forgotten or never knew what it stood for, that it was an acronym for AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, ACT UP. And you found it mostly... Um, involve, involving white activists, did they embrace diversity over time once you and other people got involved? Or did you find resistance?
7: I didn't find any resistance. Um, I definitely found you know, that they embraced me. You know, they were mem- members of ACT UP that um, I became a member of the housing committee because I was, uh, at the time, living in a community shelter. And um, they were very supportive with an idea that I and a few others had in regards to knowing a building around 120 Street that wasn't being utilized. <laughs> and we thought, yes. well, we can put it to good use. And um, we took the building over. It was owned by a Catholic church, you know, and um, later we got in touch with the, uh, the priest that had the building. Um, and we were committed to utilize the building, you know. Yeah. Um, and of for, course
1: housing for people who were around then, housing was such a big issue. For people yeah, yeah. with AIDS, uh that's how the group Housing Works, for example, got started. Louis, thank you very much. I'm gonna get one more in here before we run out of time, Kai. Uh Mendes in Jersey City are on W N Y C. Hello, Mendes.
0: Thanks, Brian. Uh Kai, uh great work. Thanks for your work. Um Actually, it was very close to me and personal. Um, I was in Manhattan at the time, a young fella. uh, I spent time at Columbia University. But I do remember, as a Haitian background, it was a double whammy because we had to face that crisis so, I mean, it was so brutal for the Haitian community. Uh, We were, you know, it was almost embarrassing as a young Haitian American. And you know, all, you hear we had a big march at, uh, on the uh, Brooklyn Bridge. I I participated. I mean, I was young, but I always been an activist. So thanks for bringing this up. But it was really uh, uh, the uh, the gay men of New York and the Haitians. We were really it was horrible. And and that's and one of the
1: now. things that you're referring to that some listeners who weren't around then may not know. Is that Haitians were inaccurately tagged as an independent risk group for AIDS and HIV? Is that part of what you're referring to?
0: Of course, Brian. I, uh, <laughs> I mean, it was really. I mean, you know, the it, of course racism plays a role, and you know, and uh, you know, it was really critical for us Haitian background because. We were portrayed as you know people with disease and, uh, and at the time people were dying uh, yes,
1: when it was when it wasn't even true um thank you, thank you, Mendes, for your recollection. Kai, we've just got about a minute left anything on on those last couple of callers or anything else as we go,
6: yeah, two quick things one uh, and I'm pretty sure I've met Louis um because his work has been. Remarkable, and I think I've covered it in the past. Hmm. Um, and it really reminds me, like the co- one of the core things about this history when we think about a group like act up is it's it there's so much mutual aid and caretaking in this history and we think of the big activism it's almost like uh, the history of the black panthers we think of the big uh public activism and d- civil disobedience and that's super important but the re- but like a really big important part of these histories is the ways in which people like Louis stood up and took care of each other and created and created uh, created ways for people to come together when institutions were failing. Um, and so that's something that I really have been inspired by. And the other thing is I'll say is if I can just plug coming up in a couple of weeks, February 25th on notes from America, we're going to do two hour special of exactly this and just opening the phones and getting people to call us up and tell us their stories uh, because this has touched so many people. Um, so um if you didn't get to, if you didn't get to share your story in this segment, tune in in a couple of weeks. You're going to get a chance to tell us.
1: Hey, AIDS and HIV are still with us, as you know. Is it better now?
6: Absolutely. I mean, you have to acknowledge process, our progress. Absolutely, that um, infection rates are continue to fall. Deaths uh, have fallen dramatically. However, um, you know what? Uh, the best way to understand the epidemic now, to me, is. With many other healthcare issues, if you are inside the health system, science has done its job, um, and you can avoid infection, and you can avoid. And, and if you're infected, you can live a a, a full, healthy life. Um, and if you are outside the healthcare system, you do not have access to that science, um, and it's 1985.
1: And we leave it there, with Kai Wright, host and managing editor of Notes from America. Our live national call-in show Sunday nights at six on WNYC, and host now of this season of Blind Spot on AIDS in the nineteen eighties, in the respects that he's been describing, in conjunction with the History Channel, wherever you get your podcasts. Kai, thanks so much.
6: Thank you, Brian.
1: It's the Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. Good morning again, everyone. And pertinent to the lead story that we just heard from Michael Hill, how remote learning is going on this snow day that isn't really a snow day, uh, at least in the New York City school system, later this hour, get ready for this if you're a parent or if you're a student, later this hour, we're going to invite calls from parents whose kids are home today. But not for an old fashioned snow day off from school, rather for this new indignity visited upon childhood uh, by the legacy of the pandemic, a remote learning day instead of a snow day, whether it's login problems or they're not really doing anything or whatever. Uh, we're going to invite you to call in and report how that's going. But also, and heads up, parents who want to alert your students or any teens who happen to be listening, we're going to invite students of any age, not just parents, to call in on that segment in about 20 minutes and give us one opinion about anything in the news. You have to be a student, high school or younger, for that one, but here's the thing. If they call, if you call, you can tell your teacher that Brian Lehrer said you should get extra credit in social studies for doing it. Okay, so maybe it'll even be fun. Gather up a cogent opinion on something in the news, kids, and call it in for extra credit. That'll be in around 20 minutes from right now. Meanwhile, ahead of Valentine's Day, which is tomorrow, by the way, in case anyone needed a reminder, and I think the price of roses just went up a little more just from me saying that, we now turn to the other relationships in our lives, our friends. In a new book, producer and editor of NPR's Embedded podcast, Raina Cohen, takes a closer look at why Americans put so much emphasis on romantic relationships and expect so little from friends, and she asks what would happen to both partnerships if those roles were equally important in our lives. She has a new book, that shares stories of people who have made life partners of friends, upending current expectations that spouses would always be our closest relationships. It's called The Other Significant Others, Reimagining Life with Friendship at the Center. Raina, thanks so much for coming on. Welcome locally to WNYC. I know you've been on uh, via the network.
10: Well, happy to be part of the uh, public radio family right now.
1: And listeners, we're going to open the phones right away on the fundamental question here. Can anyone relate to this concept of prioritizing your friendships over your romantic relationships? Has anyone made big life decisions with a close friend or friend group, like moving to a different city together? Maybe you even bought a house together. Do we have any friends out there that co-parent or a caregiver uh, to the other, perhaps? How do you center that friendship in your life, especially if you also have a romantic partner? And what do you call that person? Um, a sibling? Uh, your person? Your chosen family? Or any other title? Text or call us now with your ode to the friend at the center of your life. Help us report this story, 212 433 WNYC, 212-433-9692. Raina, what what made you want to write a book about this?
10: I came to this for really personal reasons. Uh, I mean, I think you kind of have to get there for a friendship like this, which is pretty invisible. Like, you know, look, you don't even have the words to describe it. You have to ask people, what do you call this kind of friend? So. In my case, um, I just became extremely close to someone I met uh, where I live in D.C., and we would see each other four or five times a week. We were each other's plus ones to parties. We hosted our own parties together. Um, And really, the term best friend didn't feel like it caught it, and I wanted to understand why a relationship so significant, didn't have a term for it, wasn't recognized. And, you know, were there other people like us out there? I had a hunch that it wasn't just us and that maybe we could learn something from people who treated friendships in this really unconventional way.
1: Want to tell us a story from the book? Maybe the story of Tilly and Cami.
10: Sure. Um So, Tilly and Cammie met when they were uh, in the Marines boot camp together when they were barely adults. And they, you know, just took to each other really quickly, which is kind of a common thing in, in these sorts of friendships. And over time, uh, they, you know, kept in touch even when they had deployments in different places. Um they really reconnected and became uh closer after Tilly came back from the Middle East. And Cammy had a child of her own at that point. Um and, and you know, just sort of life keeps going on. Eventually um, Cammy and Tilly live in the same place in Oklahoma. Um, they, you know, one of them changes schools to go to the other and they can take classes together and share textbooks. Um, Tilly helps care for Cammy's child and will be there at, you know, at preschool pickup and the daycare workers are kind of like, who is this person? Um, and they've, you know, supported each other at these different stages of life, um, beyond, I think, what people, you know, would often think about for friends. And one, you know, striking part of the story is that at one point, Cammie told somebody that she was dating that the friendship would come first, uh, you know, that a romantic partner wouldn't because she had, had bad experiences with romantic partners, assuming that the friendship was secondary. Uh, so she really kind of flipped the script in, in that moment on that date um, and, and in future dates with other men who, who took <laughs> to the idea a little bit better um, that the friendship could actually come first.
1: And do you find uh, that this happens uh, once somebody really does get involved with a romantic partner? Or is this a kind of relationship primarily for people who are not married or in committed um, romantic relationships?
10: I've seen people both who have a friendship as as the central relationship and and people who have a kind of co-equal setup where they have both a romantic partner and a platonic partner, if you will. Uh, and the reactions, you know, are, are very different from different people. In some cases, the romantic partner won't have it and is uh, is jealous or tries to undermine the friendship or the, you know, the friend who enter- enters the romantic relationship kind of <laughs> di- divests from the friendship a little bit. But I would say just as often or maybe more often, I've heard stories where a romantic partner is relieved or... Or or actively happy that not everything is going to be expected of the romantic relationship, that they can each have their own lives and communities, and that there's a sort of multiplier effect of having multiple close people in your life. Like, um, you know, one person who I interviewed named Art went through a professional crisis, and not only did his best friend take care of him through that, his best friend's girlfriend was also sending him, you know, DoorDash gift cards and checking in on him. Um, So people certainly do have both romantic relationships and friendships like these and and often find that they enrich each other.
1: Angelica in Brooklyn. You're on WNYC with Raina Cohen, author of The Other Significant Others, Reimagining Life with Friendship at the Center. Hi, Angelica.
5: Hi, Brian. Hi, Raina. Um, So I was telling your screener that I... uh, a woman of a certain age. I'm 50, and I grew up in the um, 70s and 80s in New Jersey. In uh, what was well, we didn't we didn't call it an intentional, or rather, our our families didn't call it an intentional community, but it was very much um, uh, just that. And grew up with a lot of um, what I called sister and brother friends, um, and lots of other mothers um, and other. Um, caring adults, um, in my life that I would absolutely consider other significant others. Um, there, I'm friends with them to this day. We've made many, uh, critical life decisions together. I was a single mother, um, and absolutely co-parented, um, with several of my women friends who, you know, from that time in my life. And, um, so this is just always the way that, that I've lived, right? It's it's almost like all I've known. Um mm-hmm. and when I meet people and they you know, they they sort of remark like that's a long time to know people and it's a very particular kind of um extended family. Um and I agree with the multiplier effect. Um when I've been in romantic um relationships and, and my friends who are married and partnered and couple, these folks I grew up with, um it just it adds more to it. Um and I very much feel like they are um, family, um, you know, um, chosen or, or otherwise, in, in, uh, and and serve a lot of those roles that, uh, you know, a so-called significant other would would, um, would play. Um, and it's wonderful.
1: What a great story, Angelica. Thank you very much. Raina, she's kind of your poster person, huh?
10: Yeah, I mean, in, I think actually what, what she illustrates is that there are sort of different ways to have these setups where not everything is on one person. So, you know, I'm primarily in the book looking at people who have a, you know, maybe one person who is a friend who is kind of the anchor of their life, but you can also have a lot of different people. You can have, you know, as a parent, you can have a bunch of co-parents around. Um, you can, you you know, you can sort of spread spread things um, more broadly. And for me, it was useful to look at people who had this really extreme kind of friendship um, because it it really... Opens up the possibilities of like, well, if you can have a friend be that important in your life, then maybe you can you can sort of scramble how we arrange our lives in all other ways uh, in other ways and have you know multiple friends who you build a life around.
1: David in Brooklyn has a story. David, you're on WNYC. Hi there.
8: Hey Brian, good to talk to you. Um, So, yeah, uh, across the hall from uh, where I live, my apartment building, is um, my neighbor. She's a single mom. Um, Her son now is 14, so uh, I've lived there for nine years, so I've really kind of watched this kid grow up. Um, And uh, me and her are really tight. Um, I see her son as kind of like a younger brother slash, I don't know, I could be like a father figure. I try and... Uh, teach him in his part as much wisdom as I can upon him um but he and his mom um're really close we've taken trips together um and oh i'll also add that, yeah, I do have a girlfriend um and she does not mind it all kind of it all kind of works together, which is great
1: David, Thank you so much for the story um so think about these two callers Raina. i mean the the first one you know talking about a multi-family co-parenting situation, um, I'm reminded maybe even of the kibbutz model, you know, in in the Israeli sense, and with David thinking about how he becomes like an older brother, I think he characterized it um, as if to this to this single mom. And I, I wonder if, to some degree, both of those models are replacing what used to be more common, which is extended families uh, living together, multi-generational households, a lot of cousins and their families living in the same neighborhood, that kind of thing. And that just doesn't exist anymore with, you know, what's been for generations now, a sort of nuclear family-oriented world. And so people put community back together in a different way, and this is one way.
10: Absolutely. Uh, And I think there's kind of growing recognition that that the nuclear family, which is held up as an ideal, you know, a two-parent family, is actually not even enough, that we need more people around. And I, you know, I see a version of this in my own life. Like, I uh, live with my husband and two of our friends, and they are two kids. And merely being a, a present adult around the kids can be so helpful to to my friends who are parents, and then, you know, to the, the kind of more traditional model that you're talking about, like my brother and sister-in-law live in a house with um, my my father, my sister-in-law's parents, and their their young child. And, you know, they were talking about how this uh, baby was running four adults ragged. Like, you, we you really could use more forms of support in our lives. And there, you know, there is this, the option of an extended family, but some people, it just, you know, it doesn't work out for some reason, or maybe the people that they are closer to instead of being their, you know, families of origin or their biological families. And it really, by opening up the the options to kind of look around and see who you could lean on more, it gives people more opportunities to get that kind of connection and support than, you know, what a nuclear family um, offers or the, the kind of... Um, You know, package deal of the extended family where you don't necessarily have a choice in terms of who's entering the picture.
1: Jovan in Brooklyn, you're on WNYC. Hi, Jovan.
8: Hi, good morning.
1: Got a story for us?
8: Yes. uh, A few years ago, I had a uh, situation happen with a very close friend of mine, and now that's my, I would say, my significant other. Uh, There's no romance but uh, I am disabled and I just had really good credit and I intentionally put my best friend on my credit report uh, so that I could boost his credit um, because he's studying to be uh, a doctor and he should be graduating next May. And then he was drowning in student loan debt and I made a conscious decision to be there for him because um, that's a person that I'm able to depend on. They've been able to They've revolved a lot Mm -hmm. of their time and their schedule around me, and uh, I've never been in a romantic relationship, but um, family relationships and the dynamics between my siblings have changed because once I divulged uh, that information, uh, it comes with heteronormative comments of, you know, are you married, are you getting married? And I'm like, no, this is a person I trust more than my actual blood family and I can depend on. And that was something I was able to be willing to bring to the table. And um, I made a conscious decision of the pros and cons on my part and on his part. And, you know, that's something that we do for each other.
1: That's a beautiful story, Jovan. Thank you very much. And it leads me, Raina, to something else in, in your book, a question that you raise that's very pertinent to Jovan's story, I think, which is that... In the U.S., friendship is outside of the realm of legal protections, like marriage would have, you know, certain kind of protections built in, whether it's access to the person when they're in the hospital or um, financial ones, like Jovan, uh, you know, linked his uh, friend's credit report to his credit report. So is that something that you advocate for, that there be a a legal status for committed friend relationships, like there is for spouses.
10: So I, I think that marriage, being really the only option on the table in most states, is leaving out a ton of people. And while I don't necessarily think that we need to have, a, you know, a carved-out legal status for friends, I do think having other forms of legal partnership that are open to people regardless of whether they have a kind of romantic or sexual relationship is something that could help a lot of people including you know people like Jovan um but also like siblings for instance who uh care for each other i mean there there have been you know different news stories that have come out where where siblings who have lived together their entire lives end up having to pay you know tens of thousands of dollars in estate taxes because they're not you know they they don't have the benefits that that uh that married partners would um when passing down something like a home so the there are all sorts of close relationships that just don't fit this marriage model uh that are left out in the cold where when you know as you say people can't get into the hospital like t- I've you know talked to people with stories like those uh um, Um, They can try to get things like medical and legal power of attorney rights. But, you know, I've also heard stories where those are not necessarily recognized immediately because these people are seen as just friends. So um, I I would, uh, you know kind of get behind what different legal scholars have been saying and to have legal alternatives to marriage, like uh, domestic partnerships, or uh, there's a a kind of model in Colorado called the Designated Beneficiary Agreement. And basically, it's just a sort of simple form that people fill out to exchange pretty um, important financial and, and medical rights.
1: So last question, do friends like these do anything for each other for Valentine's Day?
10: You know, some of them do. Uh, there are these two, uh, you know, men that I that I spoke to, Art and Nick, and they refer to each other as brothers and they celebrate their brotherversary um, uh, at you know, <laughs> to the, the sort of anniversary of their friendship. And they will also celebrate Valentine's Day. And th- I mean, their case was kind of interesting because one of them is a straight man and really had to like get over some of his concerns that people would you know, misread the situation. And you know, why should he care if people did misread the situation anyway? So they have celebrated Valentine's Day. I remember they had, I think, cooked a nice meal and went out to a movie. Um, and yeah, you know, talked to other people who have celebrated um, their friendship that way. And and today is also Galentine's Day slash Palentine's Day. So there is now, thanks to Parks and Recreation, the TV show, yes. a day that is specifically carved out for friends, as I think we we should have.
1: Oh, I didn't realize it had a particular day. It's the day before Valentine's Day. It's today, Valentine's yeah, Day. Yeah,
10: yeah, yeah. It How is about that? It, officially February well, 13th.
1: That will almost do it with Raina Cohen, producer and editor of NPR's Embedded, and the author now of The Other Significant Others Reimagining Life with Friendship at the Center. But I said almost because I see you brought a little bit of music to go out on. So do you want to set this up?
10: Yes. Uh, So uh, I was talking to a couple of friends of mine who have written a bunch of songs for people's weddings, like personalized songs. And uh, they were up for the challenge of writing a song about friendship, because we don't really have a lot of songs about platonic love, um, mostly sort of falling in romantic love and heartache. And uh, they wrote a song based on the book. And there are details that you will appreciate if you've read the book, but even, I think, apart from that, it really re- like feels to me like an anthem for friendship. Um, and the the band who made this, uh, they're called Rings of Maple, and this song is called Dear Friend.
1: So, Raina, thank you very much, and let's go out with a little bit of that
4: song. You're my person, you're my rock The one I
3: call when life
0: gets hard A part of my soul, a piece of my heart Dear friend
1: Thanks for listening to Brian Lehrer Weekend. We're back on the radio Monday morning at 10 a.m. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Brian Lehrer or Facebook.com slash Brian Lehrer WNYC where there's always a conversation 24-7.